I do have to say that based on all the other companies we analyze, I was expecting to see gross margin highlighted in their financials and talked about in the presentation. But Facebook's actual operating margin is so good that that is what shows up everywhere because they actually make money and they make a ton of it. It's like a dramatic departure from a lot of the episodes we've done in the last year. So <laughs> that's that's insane. I mean, the fun, the way to like think about that stat is like for every dollar they bring in house, they keep 45 cents even after paying for everything, all their fixed costs, all their employees. It's just a cash machine. Man, that's why it's a $630 billion market cap company. <laughs> yep. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 1 of Acquired, the podcast about great technology companies and the stories behind them. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today, we are talking about WhatsApp, an app that Facebook paid $22 billion for and has done virtually nothing in the six years since. And in fact, it was reported last week they are, uh, that's right, David, abandoning near-term efforts uh, to enable advertising in WhatsApp, which, of course, is Facebook's core business model. I mean, just, you said $22 billion, right? Billion. Just to make sure we're on the same page. That's right. Yeah. That's 22 Instagrams right there. So today uh, we will decide, was this one of the worst acquisitions of all time, or did Facebook make a genius move even for this insanely, insanely high cost? I'm super looking forward both to telling this story because it's an amazing story, but also to debating that question because, um, you know, I think there are really good arguments to be made on both sides. This is as classic as a classic acquired episode gets. We have more than five years of, of hindsight. Uh, we've got a big price tag. We had lots of reporting around the time of the sale and frankly, not a ton of follow-up since. So it's going to be fun to tell, uh, tell the WhatsApp story from the very beginning. And as you said, debate that very question. All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two. Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the Visa numbers, I just pulled up my Visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including 
Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. If you're a fan of the show and you want to go deeper on company-building topics, the nitty-gritty of how companies today are solving problems in real time, you should consider becoming an Acquired Limited Partner. In recent episodes, we interviewed the founder of fast-growing Chicago startup Cameo, and we did another episode that turns the tables and interviewed us on the business strategy behind Acquired. You can get started with a seven-day free trial and listen right here in the podcast player of your choice by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired. David, I think it is time to dive in. Let's dive in. You know, there's something funny about messaging apps. I'm just thinking, looking at our script here and where we're going to start and how we started the Slack episode with uh, Dharma Butterfield, soon to become Stuart Butterfield. On a commune. Growing up on a commune in British Columbia. There's something about communism and messaging apps. Uh, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it just makes for, it's a really good breeding ground for founders of messaging apps. And it's of course- strong community. It is that Foster, strong community. You know? So of course I'm referring to, we are going to start in the mid 1970s in the Soviet Union, in Ukraine, in a little village uh, just outside of Kiev, where a boy named Jan Kum is born to a Jewish family uh, in 1976 in this village in the then Soviet Union. And this is a pretty not great time to be all of those things. <laughs> a Jewish child in Ukraine in the Soviet Union under communism in the mid-1970s. And Jan actually kind of later talks about this, and he says he says of his, his time in the school he attended there, it was so run down that our school didn't even have an inside bathroom. Imagine the Ukrainian winter, negative 20 degrees Celsius, where little kids have to stroll across the parking lot to use the bathroom. Society was extremely closed off. You can read 1984, of course, the book 1984, but living there was experiencing it. I didn't own my own computer until I was 19, but I did have an abacus. <laughs> that was the reality that this young man, Jan Kum, is growing up in. And he would stay in Ukraine until he was 16 years old. And, and this would have just such an impact on everything that's to come, this entire story. His dad worked for a state-run construction company in the village. It was really hard, and it was a very anti-Semitic environment. Finally, by the time Jan was 16, his mother and his grandmother, and he were able to escape. This is in 1992. The Berlin Wall had fallen at this point. They were able to get out of the country and come to America. So the three of them moved to Mountain View, California. Jan is 16 years old. He barely speaks any English. And when they arrive, his mom starts working as a nanny to uh, support the family. But it's not enough. They live in government-assisted housing in Mountain View. They're on food stamps. 
Jan's dad never is able to leave the Ukraine. He very sadly passes away in 1997, never comes to America. And then even more tragically, you know, a few years after that, in 2000, we're going to talk much more about what happens before the year 2000, Jan's mom is diagnosed with cancer and passes away in 2000. So here's this, this guy, you know, now at the end of the day, in the end of this story, you know, Jan walks away with nearly $7 billion after taxes from the WhatsApp sale. His life was, <laughs> this man has been through a lot. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. And I think you opened that chapter with saying it was a pretty not great time. That is a very soft way to describe a very hard, uh, yeah. hard existence. So when he comes to America, like I said, he doesn't speak much English. You know, he enrolls in American high school in, in you know California. He doesn't get along with the other kids there. He's had a lot of trauma in his life. He's got this kind of one thing that sort of uh, um, ends up becoming a light in his life, and that he get is that. He's in Silicon Valley. This is the mid-90s. He gets really into computers. Um, and he actually teaches himself programming and like computer like networking by purchasing manuals from a used bookstore, <laughs> a local used bookstore, and uh, reading through them, teaching himself, uh, and probably working on the school computers, learning how to program, and then returning them to the store and getting the money back after he's done. He ends up kind of through this. He joins, while he's still in high school, a hacker group online called Woo Woo, W-0-0, W-0-0. That's elite speak Woo Woo. <laughs> elite yeah. speak Woo Woo. And uh, he ends up meeting Napster co-founder Sean Fanning through that. And he's like, he kind of finds his community on the internet. After high school and through all this, he enrolls in San Jose State University uh, in college. But college is kind of not for him. He ends up dropping out. He first takes a job bagging groceries. Then he ends up working at Fry's Electronics. And if you've hung out in Silicon Valley, and I remember when I was, uh, when I was at GSP at Stanford, there's still like, well, now in 2020, I don't know. But when I was at GSP, there's still a Fry's Electronics <laughs> on El Camino Real in, uh, in Palo Alto. Yep. Um, Jan works there. Then from there, he ends up working at a early internet service provider, a local ISP. And through that, then he ends up actually joining Ernst & Young as a like computer security like penetration tester. So he's putting all of his like hacker cred to use, even though he's a college <laughs> dropout. White hat. Yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> uh, unclear, you know, white hat by day, unclear what Jan was doing at night. <laughs> um, this is where kind of everything changes. So he goes to a conference while he's with Ernst & Young. And at the conference, uh, this is now kind of mid-90s, he meets... Yahoo co-founder David Philo. Uh, he's at an Apache security conference. They kind of hit it off. And David's like, hey, you know, when we get back to California, why don't, why don't you come into Yahoo and interview for a job? So Jan does. He ends up joining Yahoo as an infrastructure engineer, becomes a real engineer. And he meets in his group when he joins a man who ends up, you know, I think at first kind of becoming a mentor figure uh, and then a deep friend, a man named Brian Acton. Now, who is Brian? <laughs> Brian has kind of a, not quite as uh, dramatic, but equally really interesting story. Brian was born in Michigan in 1972. I believe his parents may have divorced when he was quite young, but he was mostly raised by his mom who ran her own freight forwarding business kind of incredible like <laughs> this woman you know with a child just like running a freight forwarding business I, I would imagine not a super 
female-friendly business uh, in those days. Not the venture capital darling that freight forwarding is today. Yeah, this is way pre-convoy. And uh, And uh, pre-flexport. What's the flexport? Yeah. She then moves him to Florida, and he spends most of his growing up years in central Florida, I believe. She instills in him kind of this ethos of like both entrepreneurship and like small business entrepreneurship, but also like huge responsibility to like meeting payroll and like scraping by and getting, you know, getting through month to month. He ends up, he's super bright. He ends up going to Penn on a full scholarship to study engineering. While he's there and he's learning about engineering in his freshman year, he first, you know, hears kind of about Silicon Valley and about this, you know, university called Stanford. He probably like heard of of Stanford before, but like, you know, him and his background and nobody in Florida was thinking about going to Stanford. He ends up applying to transfer and is accepted into Stanford and transfers out to California his sophomore year and majors, ends up majoring in computer science at Stanford. This ends up being huge for him. He interns at Apple his junior year. And then after graduation, he joins Yahoo as employee number 44 in the really early days. And he works super closely with David Philo. Uh, he works with Chi Lu and like all these like super legendary engineering leaders that end up coming out of Yahoo. Because in a lot of ways, you know, Yahoo was the first, we haven't really covered it enough on this show yet, but it was the first like um, successful, successful, uh, well, well, internet portal. company. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Internet directory, basically. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, Chi Lu. So, she obviously is very notable for his work at, at Yahoo. I know him as like my mega skip level boss from Microsoft when he ran Bing because Microsoft recruited him over uh, and he ran search for Microsoft and then ultimately actually took over all of Office as well. Wow. And of course, you know, the relationship between Yahoo and Microsoft, many of our listeners probably know, is really uh, long and complicated. <laughs> A topic for another day. But Brian and Jan kind of become kindred spirits uh, when Jan joins uh, Yahoo and Brian really rises through the ranks. He ends up becoming the chief architect of Project Panama within Yahoo, which was super, you know, they would talk about it on their earnings calls. I remember Carol Bartz talking about it all the time and, um, and then Marissa Mayer after she became CEO. And that was a massive project to re-architect all of the back end of how Yahoo Search worked and how ads worked on Yahoo Search. So the two of them with Brian kind of leading on the technical side go through this experience of re-architecting at massive scale this, you know, original internet company, but doing it for like while this company is going from, you know, over a hundred billion dollar market cap, darling of Silicon Valley all the way down to below 10 and then just plummeting plummeting when what did they what did Verizon ultimately buy Yahoo for I think it was like three billion dollars or something I don't know but the yeah if, if your final resting place is at Verizon then yeah it's sort of irrelevant where yeah. your final market cap was so they get this incredible technical experience but they also see like this business model of a portal um, that Yahoo is like it's so Fickle, and it's so dependent on user attention and it's so dependent on advertising and they start to believe that yahoo makes a ton of product compromises in service of their ad partners 
and that that was a big reason. You know, they they simultaneously through these years see the rise of Google, and you know, Google famously is just like these days just one white page with a search box on it meanwhile yahoo's throwing up all of these display ads and doing all this stuff and they become super super disillusioned with it and you bring up an important point there yahoo was the very first internet company that's business model was to monetize attention i don't need to paint the picture for listeners that the most successful company to ever be on the internet and monetize attention is facebook and so i think there's this uh this sort of incredible bookending of the story well and that's where i was i was gonna be going with it and and it's also during this time famously that yahoo tries to acquire facebook for a billion dollars um you know is this uh, when mark cried in the bathroom after rejecting it i think so i think so um yeah and uh, you know this is going to be a meta theme of this episode but like this idea of monetizing attention through advertising is in many ways as old as the internet itself yahoo was the first big company that was built to do that and Facebook is the new Yahoo in so many ways. So they get so disillusioned. I don't know if this is still the case on, on Jan's LinkedIn, um, but uh, when he was leaving Yahoo and then the first couple of years of WhatsApp, he described his last three years uh, at Yahoo, you know, his sort of like description on LinkedIn of your role and what you did. He said, did some work period. <laughs> uh, and of course they were working on project Panama in November of 2007, Brian and Jan have finally kind of had enough and they both leave right at the same, I think it may have even been the same day that they leave Yahoo and they're just like completely burned out. They both decide they're going to take a bunch of time off. Brian had recently been through a divorce, you know, and Jan had had such a hard <laughs> life up into that point and lost his parents in the past few years. So they say, you know, we have enough savings. We got into Yahoo, especially Brian, early enough that they can afford to just really take extended time off and travel. And at one point, after they get pretty bored, <laughs> they both, this is famously, end up applying for jobs at Facebook, which is, of course, on the rise now. Uh, we're in 2008. <laughs> and they are both rejected for jobs at Facebook. Brian Evan, uh, even tweets about it. <laughs> Facebook clearly does not need their talents or ideas. Yeah, which is so funny because like, they are, especially Brian, but both of them, but especially Brian, like truly world-class engineers. There's a thing, though, that was going on at Facebook at that time that I think a lot of people forget about. Not that the company's benevolent now, but whereas Google was hiring a lot of the smartest people who were academic and sort of obsessed with... Really, like, pedigreed. Right. Like, and, and really, like, deep, nerdy, academic sort of learning. Facebook was obsessed with hiring a lot of people who were well-known in the communities of the languages that they wrote in. And so they had, you know, many of the early sort of Python people. They had a lot of sort of open source leaders. And and frankly, there was a lot of like, there was a lot of not invented here sort of syndrome. And there was a lot of you're not good enough for us. And we are sort of, uh, there was a cockiness that permeated, I think, the development organization at that company early on that it's not surprising that someone really accomplished, but who may have been of a different stripe or tribe uh, was, was you know, not um, not welcomed and not revered. It's really interesting. I wasn't going to get into this in the history and fact, but it's worth a, worth a pause. Most of the back end of WhatsApp ends up getting written in Erlang, <laughs> which is like this super obscure programming language that was actually developed by Ericsson in like the 80s maybe Ericsson the big telecom the Nordic telecom giant as like just purely for 
telecom use cases for like you know rapid messaging but like was super looked at as like this is backwater outdated old school like you know <laughs> this is about as far away from go as it gets like and of course, now if you start your company and and write it in Erlang, like now you have two problems: the problem that you're trying to solve for your company, and the problem that you can't recruit any engineers. Can't recruit any engineers, exactly. <laughs> There's tons of engineers that are are specifically obsessed with things like Erlang and Rust and very like more up and coming and or fringe programming languages. But gosh, you have to get specific then in your hiring when you make a decision like that. Yeah. So okay, back to picking up the story. Jan, he's single, he's traveling around. And remember, he's got this history of he was a hacker. He was, you know, a woo-woo member <laughs> and had um, started as a, as a pen tester. He is traveling around to lots of countries and he has a Nokia candy bar phone that he loves. He like really loved the old, he still talks about how he loves the old Nokia phones. Um, Dude, you could play Snake. It was great. It was great. And he had, of course, jailbroken this phone and installed all sorts of like super hacker, you know, dev tools on it that you know you can monitor everything that's going on on the network and all this stuff. So he's like obsessively learning about all of these different telecom networks in the countries he's traveling to. And he would buy different SIM cards, you know, in all the all the countries and swap them in. But even like Jan is as techy and confident as it gets. He's basically a walking IT department. He still is having a nightmare <laughs> trying to communicate with his friends back home and all around the world via SMS and and phone too. Like there are all these country codes you've got to dial. Uh, you send off an SMS. You have no idea if it was delivered. Even if you did everything right, it might drop and fall through. And so he's, especially when he's, he talks a lot about Argentina. He does a trip to Argentina. And for some reason, he thinks that the country code in Argentina is just like so ridiculous that he's like dropping all of these messages and he starts getting really fed up. And like he wants his friends to know back home what he's doing, that he's okay and everything. So he finally comes back. And in January of 2009, his birthday is in February, but he's just hanging out and he says, you know what? I'm going to buy myself an early birthday present. I'm going to buy an iPhone just to like hack around with. <laughs> and of course the <laughs> iPhone had come out in 2007, but 2009. Yeah, I think this would have been the iPhone 3G. Either the 3G or the 3GS. I think probably the 3GS yeah. at this point. Um, I think Ju July is when the 3GS came out, if memory serves. Uh, so maybe it was the 3D. But yeah. Apple had just, I believe it was in January of 2009, they had just announced the SDK to allow developers to make apps. And I think it wasn't even like apps weren't, the app store wasn't going to ship until the summer, but the SDK was out there. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, I think I it, it may have been earlier, may have been been um, at WWDC 08. They announced it, but yeah, it ha I don't think it had shipped yet, or it was shipping right around that time. But the SDK came out with iPhone OS two. Yep. And so Jan, of course, is like, okay, great. Like I'm gonna hack around on this. So he's got all this stuff swirling, and he has an idea, and he tells a friend of his who's also a um, I believe it's Russian uh, immigrant in San Jose named Alex Fishman, who is a, a good buddy of Jan's. Hey, you know, I've had this problem. I have an idea. Remember like, you know, AIM and ICQ and all these messaging services on desktop, they all have these, you know, the away messages. What I really want and what I would have loved when I was in Argentina and all these other countries is that I could just throw up the equivalent of an away message and all my friends could know what I was doing and that I was okay. I'm just going to build this out on the new this new iPhone that I got. And Alex is like, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And so Jan starts hacking on it. He starts thinking about what to do. And he says, you know, 
really like what I want this to solve is, you know, everybody asking like, what's up? Uh, I just want, you know, this to be like the answer to what's up. So I'm just going to call it WhatsApp. <laughs> and Alex is like, yeah, great idea. And so Jan's thinking some more and he says, you know, okay, well, two things. One, AIM and ICQ and all these messaging services on the desktop, there's kind of this issue with them, which is you have a cold start problem with the network. You know, you join, but none of your friends are on there. And so you got to convince people to go convince all their friends to join. But with phones, you know, I'm really, I'm digging into the, this new iPhone. Well, it wasn't even called iOS yet at this point, right? It was like, I forget what Apple was, iPhone OS SDK. And it's pretty locked down, but there's one feature that Apple lets developers access, and that's the address book, the contacts. What if instead of... And at the time, there was no special permission prompting no, for that. Absolutely you not. Just yeah, you just access Reach it. right in. Yep. <laughs> reach your hand into the cookie jar. And um, he's like, man, what do you think if instead of having you know screen names and usernames, we just use phone numbers? Because all of the phone numbers of people you have, you're only going to give your phone number to somebody you really want to communicate with and you'd want them to know, you know what your status is. So this might solve that cold start problem. And so Alex is like, yeah, that, that seems good. But you know, you're, there's one thing you're going to need. Like, Jan, like you're a great developer. You, know, you work at Yahoo and everything, but you, you don't really know how to I know code for iOS, but it just so happens through another. You, you don't know this ob- archaic thing called Objective C yeah, that right. you know, was written at Next that <laughs> Apple has decided to carry forward into all their products to date. I know, so <laughs> ridiculous uh, that like Next is the you know core of Objective C and and Swift. Yeah, it's now. Still, still one of the greatest acquisitions of all time. Still, uh, they'll have to go on our uh, forthcoming acquired top ten list. Um, yeah, wait. So before you get into hiring the iOS dev. Did they grow by texting all of your f- friends? Like, did they did they reach in, grab the phone numbers out of your address book, and then like carpet bomb? Or how did That's that? That's a work? good question. I don't believe so. I didn't find anything that they did like the LinkedIn playbook of actually go the step further and carpet bomb. But they did reach in and get all the contact information, and so they were checking. They would grab your address book and check everybody on there. And I remember when I onboarded onto WhatsApp years ago. It checks and, and then they surface for you like, oh, hey, I think it even shows you your whole address book and then like checks like Here these are the, are the people, people that, that are, are on WhatsApp, WhatsApp who yep. are in your address book. Yep, exactly. Got it. So anyway, Alex is like, oh, yeah, I was working on another project and um, I found this awesome dude in, in back in Russia on rentacoder.com who's a really yeah. great <laughs> iOS dev. Uh, I loved reading that in the research. I know. So great. This guy named Igor uh Solomenikov. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And so Jan's like, cool. He contracts up Igor. They code up an app, this, you know, away message app, and they're getting ready to ship it. And Jan's like, oh man, um, it turns out, you know, in the in the app store, this new app store that uh, Apple has, I guess the app store must have shipped at this point in time because we're now in. Yeah, if I remember right, I think that they announced the SDK at WWDC 08, 08. which would have been June yeah. and, and then, then it, shipped it probably four months later, three yeah. months later. So it would have been out for a few months, but they wouldn't have had push yet because yeah. that came in iOS, iPhone right. OS. Push is coming in a sec. Uh, so no, no push. Uh, no push messages, no push notifications that apps, third-party apps can provide. So Jan's ready to, Jan and, and Igor are ready to ship the app. And he's looking through the app store and he's like, oh, um, we need to incorporate this as a company 
because there are all these developers. And remember back, right. if you remember back in, uh, well, you, Ben, you, you were probably a doing number. this. You needed a, a, a <laughs> Dunn's number. But also, if you didn't, you could ship it as an individual. But then your name is listed as the developer, and then people start contacting you. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. You had to, like, fax stuff to Apple. Like, this is this is the why I incorporated my first business, is because this was a requirement of the App Store. Otherwise, your name was on it. Totally. So get this. You will, Ben, you will totally appreciate this. So this is on Jan's birthday in 2009, February 24th. He He's like, shoot, we got to incorporate this. He drives up to San Francisco. He had talked to like an accountant friend of his. He was like, how do I like incorporate a company? And the accountant's like, oh, no, no, don't worry about it. Like I got, here's a template articles of incorporation in the state of California. There's like five articles there. And he's like, just like, you know, do a control H, you know, uh, find and replace and put, you know, WhatsApp instead of whatever I got here. Then you drive up to San Francisco. You go to the Secretary of, of State in San Francisco. You show them the articles. They stamp it. You pay a hundred bucks and you're done. So that's what Jan does. He drives up. He does that. He takes a photo of it and he sends it into Apple. <laughs> and boom, WhatsApp Inc. is born. <laughs> love it. Uh, not love exactly, it, it. you know, usually, you know, typically you're starting a startup, you have all these ambitions. You're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go talk to, you know, going to go talk to Wilson Sonsini. You're going to go talk to hey, any of the great law firms out no there. No way, man. Gonna, uh, incorporate Dude, us. my nope. first app LLC was uh, LegalZoom. Like, why uh, not? Well, you even use LegalZoom. Jan was just like, <laughs> he literally scribbled some stuff on paper and <laughs> did it by <laughs> hand. Um, so uh, they get that done. They ship the app with these great expectations, Jan thinks it's going to be so awesome. And in his own words, direct quote, it fails horribly. <laughs> and so what's the the functionality at this point? It's just the statuses. Like you can just say like, hey, in case you happen to open this app and check. And you're curious what I'm up to. This is my status. It's literally just away messages, no notifications. If you happen to, exactly like you said, if you happen to open the app, right. you can see. And away oh, messages seem like pretty useless unless someone's trying to message you right right i mean the the the, the literally the, the name of it is like i'm sending <laughs> you a message that i am away <laughs> um, <laughs> so use, usage is horrible but they pick up people registering and downloading the app and this is this i thought was so fun reminded me of these days um they do a pretty interesting growth hack so there were so few apps in the app store back then. And I remember this, like I did this for years. I would check like every week, what are the new oh, apps? Oh yeah, like what Apple? are the new apps? Apple had the <laughs> what's new section. And Jan realizes, he's like, you know what? I can get a lot of people just trying this out. If every week I change the name of the app slightly, Apple will put me in the what's new section no week after week. And I swear this is what he did. <laughs> Uh, crazy totally crazy and so as a result um he's getting all these users they're, they're like trying it once being like this is stupid and stopping but he does have a bunch of people like he's at least getting that feedback he knows like he's been in the valley a while and he's like all right gotta keep like working on it iterating on the product tries adding a bunch of features it doesn't really help well, one thing i forgot to mention from back in the yahoo days brian and jan bonded not just kind of over becoming friends and their ethos but they also both are incredibly passionate about ultimate frisbee and they would play ultimate frisbee together and so they go to a game together one day when um when jan's working on this and he's talking with brian afterwards and he's like you know this is not working i should probably 
to give up and go back to looking for a job, go back to, you know, Facebook or find some other startup. And Brian is like, no, you've got to keep going. Like you, literally the quote is, he says, you'd be an idiot to quit now. Give it a few more months. Keep working on it. Um, and Brian's not actually involved with the company, right? Not at all. He's just a friend at this point in time. Uh, and Brian was working on his own startup at this point in time. Uh, I actually couldn't find out what that was, uh, but whatever it was, he eventually made the right decision to stop that. And this was, I mean, it's so, you know, we haven't used the history turns on a knife point phrase in a while here on. Maybe on since Acquire. Blockbuster. Yeah, maybe since Blockbuster. But like, Jan was ready to quit. And if Brian hadn't told him to keep going, he wouldn't have kept going long enough through WWDC 2009 in the summer when Apple introduces push notifications for third-party apps. Boy, is timing everything. Oh, man. Is it ever? The funny thing is, you would think, and in hindsight now, this is like so obvious. It's like, oh, now you know I can send. I don't have to rely on users randomly deciding to open up my app and see what's going on. I can now send them notifications and prompt them to do this and like messaging. Duh! Why don't we just build all of AIM instead of AOL Instant Messenger and, and ICQ instead of uh, just away messages? <laughs> Funnily enough, at first Jan is like, "Oh, this is great. Now I will update WhatsApp so that every time you change your status." it'll just broadcast the away message out to everyone. So you couldn't actually message. He was only broadcasting <laughs> away messages. <laughs> and we should, we should take a moment here. Like I, I was fortunate to like be living through this era and be very, very, very obsessed with the iPhone as I was like starting to create apps. So you might be wondering like, why didn't aim come to the iPhone? Well, they were like aim oh, was one, no an early, early partner for Apple. Yeah. They, they had an app on the app store very early. I want to say, iOS 3 like this early the the other app that came out really early that um was originally I can't remember if it's a flash website or an html5 website like a really early one but it was called Mebo and it was a cross service messaging client where you could have aim and icq and it sort of like subscribed to all those different apis and there but was also was a Mebo desktop app that, right originally Mebo. it was desktop but they they right exactly but then they they were um one of the early companies to have an app and I I should go watch old dub dub videos, but I do think they were at one of these. Um, I think AIM was like demoed on stage as this is a really good way to use notifications um, to, to send messages to people. If you're out there wondering, like, why didn't those companies just do it? They did. They brought the functionality. They sort of ported from desktop. So it was sort of, it had potentially too many features. It was it was not sort of um, necessarily a native feeling experience. But it also didn't have the sort of genius thing that, that Jan had with the network being based on phone numbers. Yeah, nobody else had that. That was a major major key to WhatsApp's success and ability to to outstrip all of the you know new entrants and AIM and Mebo and all, all these legacy guys transitioning. The other important thing to know about, remember about what was going on at this time, was there was, uh, are you going to say BBM? No, go for it. Oh, uh, <laughs> well, BBM, BlackBerry Messenger, there also was a playbook of how to execute messaging on mobile that had been around for several years, and that was BlackBerry Messenger. And you know, these were the days people used to talk about BlackBerry being Crackberries, and you know there really were two core use cases of BlackBerry, and I think people forget this. One was corporate email, and that's what now when people think of and remember RIM and Blackberries, they think of that. But actually, no, a lot of consumers were using 
blackberries and the killer app was blackberry messenger and it was a fully featured mobile messenger just like way ahead of its time but it was limited to the blackberry network yeah and the way people talk about bbm then is very similar to the way that uh people in a very uppity way talk about iMessage today and the way that like people refer to oh blue bubbles versus green bubbles like i remember my friends who had blackberries then and of course i didn't i was rocking my candy bar or i think i had a flip phone at that point but i remember um one of my friends in college being like oh yeah no i i don't really i don't like texting like i don't i don't text people but if they have blackberry like i'll definitely bbm like i really like you know that's nice and of course like there's slightly different feature set like you can see when things are red or not red but like it was the sort of like cool network to be on. It was the blue bubble. Yeah. So Jan's smart and Brian's smart and, you know, Brian's kind of advising him at this point and, and their friend Alex is, is helping them and they realized pretty quickly. And remember also they had this user base cause they kept doing these growth hacks of changing the name and getting new people coming in every week. They had this user base and the users were like, guys, uh, I really just want a message. <laughs> like these away messages are nice, but can I, can you please like just implement messaging yeah and they and they found that people were actually using the away messages coupled with the push notification that had just come out to sort of use it as a messenger anyway so they would like frequently update their their status other and their friends would update their status back like they were sort of hacking it to make it a messaging app and it's going out to everybody in their network (laughs) (laughs) it was like it was like whatsapp and twitter combined yeah as i say it's kind of like early twitter yeah anyway so they they figured this out like okay great we're going to build messaging into this. They do. They launch it in like late August, early September uh, of 2009. And it immediately takes off. Uh, again, one, because it's they really do a good job with the execution. It's super simple. The UI is very straightforward. But again, this address book innovation, the contacts, and not having to go through usernames and finding your friends and all that and everybody just being on there is major and and because again they had had all those users that had used previous versions of the app they had you know suddenly about a quarter of a million users Uh, and so that's enough network density that people can start getting real value out of the app and it just starts growing like gangbusters so at this point jan goes to see brian again and says like hey this is really working like what do you think about coming and joining me full time and like doing this for real and like let's raise some money and and make this happen? Brian says, "Yeah, I'm in. This is now for real. I'm going to do this." And he says, "I'm going to invest some of my own money from my Yahoo savings and let's go round up a bunch of our former friends at Yahoo and put an angel financing together." So they put together two hundred fifty thousand dollars, all from former friends and coworkers. Brian joins the company officially he gets um it's been reported roughly about a 20 percent stake in the company uh jan owns the rest of the company and then um, i don't know what the valuation was on the seed round so the you know angel investors for their 250k obviously get get a stake and it kind of goes gangbusters from there you know jan uh, he says uh, much later in a talk He's very uh, direct, as you would imagine, <laughs> given his uh, Ukrainian upbringing. You know, he says, and he's so right. He's like, look, we were lucky. We stumbled into something that people found really meaningful. And what it was, messaging is the killer app for mobile. Like, period. Full stop. Like, And it's true. It's come to bear in every country, on every platform. 
yeah, there's there's so many things that you can do on your phone. And, you know, Matt Culler at Benchmark famously you know, talks about like the smartphone is the remote control for your life. And it's right. You can order a car to come pick you up and do all these things. But if you think about, you know, both I imagine everybody listening to this, you personally, and certainly in aggregate, the population, you spend by far the majority of your time, forget Instagram, forget, you know, Uber, forget all of that messaging with your friends that's the real primary killer app for mobile phones do you consider twitter to be messaging that's a good question no i think it's different i think it's social media um maybe social media is near or equal importance but if like you think about like what's definitely this is true for me i'm curious if it is for you like what is the most important thing like i could live without twitter on my phone but i could not live without iMessage my most used app by almost a factor of two is Twitter on my phone by mm. amount of time spent over the past week. Um, Interesting. And then mail coming in at number two. And messages is down probably at like number four. I, I do probably the most important communication in messages, but I'm in and out of it. I mean, it, it, it doesn't have to be the dominant thing taking up the screen most of your time to be the most important thing on your phone. That's true. And probably Brian and, and Jan would totally agree with that it's not about time spent it's not about it but but the most important conversations you're having in a you know in a messaging relationship once they figure this out you know jan then also talks about like before you know in sort of the whatsapp 1.0 version when it was just about statuses and away messages it was just like ben you talk about all the time about the definition of product market fit it was like you're pushing a boulder up a hill you know everything is hard <laughs> like getting users to use it is hard getting engagement nobody wants to invest nobody wants to work for you this then is before do, product market fit before product market fit and then all of a sudden they have instant product market fit with messaging and everything changes <laughs> people are adopting like crazy all of their old yahoo friends want to come work for them investors start beating down their doors <laughs> and like uh, literally looking for them in unmarked <laughs> locations <laughs> and uh, attempting to network their way to the founders totally and we'll get into how that comes together next in just a sec but before they do take money they do another really smart thing again for them at the time uh and i think this might have actually been brian that kind of came up with this and uh, advocated for doing it so they were free it was a free app in the app store but again remember think back to 2009 their paid and free hadn't you could do both in the app store and it hadn't yet shaken out that like free was the way to go um there were a yeah, lot and there were of, certainly no in-app purchases or subscriptions like you could you could pay an amount of money to download an app or it could be free yep and so brian suggests well what if we charge 99 cents for the app in the app store that would do two things one it would dial down growth a little bit, which on the one hand is bad, but on the other hand, our servers are melting down and we got to like pay for server costs. And remember, they don't run on AWS because they're using Erlang and I think they ran on FreeBSD. It's also 2010. Like, it's, I don't know, what services are available? S3 and like maybe EC2, but like AWS yeah. is not huge yet. And, and certainly not... Um, Anywhere like cloud at all to, like yeah build a yeah, di uh, dynamically scaling apps are not or dynamically scaling backends are not a thing yet and remember reliability for a messaging service and preserving chat history is like the number one thing so you don't want your service going down so he's like okay this might solve our our rate scaling problem or give us some breathing room and then two you know 
give us a business model and we can kind of control our own destiny. I thought that was the craziest thing when I read it that like that I always knew it was a dollar and I knew like, okay, because that's like they think of this as like it's not that expensive to run the service. The most expensive thing is like sending the SMS verification every once in a while when a new person joins the service and we need to verify their phone number. So like and that actually ends up being quite expensive to do that totally but they're not these these guys aren't in value capture mode they're just trying to figure out a sustainable way to sort of like keep the lights on so it's this dollar a year thing it blew my mind when i realized that they were toggling the dollar on and off when they wanted to throttle growth so that yeah. their, their back end could catch up that is like that is some unbelievable product market fit right there i know i know unbelievable well and so the other thing though yeah they can charge 99 cents for the app because the value prop to consumers is unlike AIM and ICQ that are desktop, mobile messaging is truly an SMS replacement and SMS is super expensive, even in the US. Like you were paying, I remember this being the stupidest thing because you you would pay for like, I think I had to pay an extra $10 a month to get unlimited SMS. Like uh, there was some era in like 07 to 2010 where you would pay by SMS and that was the dominant feature of phone plans. And I think that's how it mostly was internationally. But at least by like 2010, AT&T and others had adopted this unlimited texting for a $10 add-on, which can I, I like- I'm paying $120 a year for texting. It's ridiculous. It's like, yeah, the, to, to go in a little bit of a technical aside here, the SMS protocol is limited to 160 characters, which is obviously- a super small size of data that's transmitted back and forth because with early cell phones the way that the cell towers would know that your phone was still on their network was every second or two they would just go ping all the phones and there was an extra basically enough room for an extra 160 characters in that heartbeat that it was communicating back and forth with every phone anyway and so it literally had no additional cost of goods sold to carriers to 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 do this because it was just sending and receiving these extra you know pieces of information when it would have been pinging those phones anyway and so it's kind of a genius business model move on the carrier part but i remember when i learned that as a consumer being so pissed like well these were the days you know (laughs) all those news stories of like you know um middle-aged dad in you know name your suburban you know town outraged to get hundred thousand dollar bill from carrier because teenage daughter (laughs) is sending sixty thousand text messages you know in a month and so that was all in the u.s but then as you said in many countries around the world especially in europe but but lots of countries around the world it was still it was either a metered per message um, fee that consumers were paying. But then think about like a, a continent like Europe where there are lots of countries all together. They're like states in America. You know, people are texting and have friends like 20 miles away that are in a different country. You're paying a tariff to go outside of your country it's costing you like five dollars a text message to text your friends so here's whatsapp out there and they're like even for 99 cents for the app right that's an amazing value proposition it's this magical arbitrage opportunity where they could say we could basically provide the same service if not better because no limit on characters right all the way the business models are set up is for this gorge consumers on sms 
and this new thing came out, the data layer, you know, the, the, the data network, which I don't, so 3G was new, it was Edge and 3G, but it had just rolled out and, and suddenly you could basically spoof the functionality of SMS just over the data layer. These moments like don't happen that often in the world at the scale that they happened here, where you can, ju- you get like a six month window as a startup to be like, oh my God, the business model of the time is so misaligned with the technology that's available. We'll get to playbook later, of course, but I think this is a huge one of like there are these moments that happen with every you know paradigm shift in technology where you know we've talked about it with the internet before, we've talked about it with a, a little bit with mobile, where it's like, oh man, this is the window. It's only going to be open for for a short period of time, but like if you can get through, you can realize billions of dollars in value. They do this. They ship at. I believe really fast. I think at like the end of 2009, they ship um, the ability to add multimedia to WhatsApp messages. So photos, videos. Um, I think, yeah, I think video came later, but definitely photos. Definitely photos. And so then, and growth just goes through the roof. Now the VCs start banging, uh, literally, literally banging, hounding. <laughs> literally hounding uh, Jan and Brian. Um, and it's so funny. The uh, so now we're in 2010, towards the end of 2010. Um, I, I didn't realize this, you know, in doing research. I guess one venture capitalist, Jan, doesn't say whom um, and what firm, literally gives them a blank term sheet, like a term sheet with like the amount to be raised and the valuation <laughs> blank, and they say fill in the numbers. <laughs> and um, you know, this is so funny. Unless I mean, thinking back on this time, you know, this is when I started in venture. Series A's were happening at this time. I was doing them of like Series A's were like 3 million dollars at like a 8 million dollar post money valuation. <laughs> and so for a venture firm to just literally give a blank term sheet this is right after the financial crisis is insanity. Um, Which, of course, they're they're non-binding. So, like, you know. Right, of course. But actually, interestingly, though, and this is, you know, a good lesson as a venture capitalist, that tactic backfires. And Jan says, you know, Brian and I talked about it, and we were like, you know, if these guys are that callous with other people's money, <laughs> uh, do we really want to, like, are those the partners that we want, you know, to be our, you know, board members and, and advisors and our financial partner? And so they ultimately end up going with Sequoia, uh, Sequoia Capital, and, and Jim gets uh, there. And Jan talks about why. Uh, also, the great quote from Jim as he's talking about this he says, um, he and Sequoia had looked at, you know, they famously do this. They look at, every company in an emerging space they think of their they have a thesis on a space they go meet with everybody and he said you know we met with he says pinger tango beluga you know kick was getting started at this time all the other messengers everybody was trying beluga, to get this by the window. way got acquired by facebook and got became facebook, facebook messenger indeed it did and he's like but it was clear that whatsapp was the leader and he says you know when he finally got to talk to jan and, and brian uh he said this is the only time this has ever happened and he's ever seen this in his venture career they were already paying corporate income taxes. <laughs> like they were profitable. <laughs> so it's like, here's clearly this is the product leader in the space. And oh my God, these guys are printing cash. Like I've never seen this. <laughs> so he convinces them to, they ultimately raise $8 million that Sequoia leads. I think it was hard to find them, right? Because they didn't put a sign outside their office. They weren't answering emails. They weren't answering phone calls. So I think Jim 
like finds their address and drives there and is he's he's the one you're referring to that's like banging on the door yeah. and saying like <laughs> I really really would like to talk to you yeah and uh, he talks about that he um, Jan and Brian used to like to work out of the Red Rock Cafe uh, in uh, downtown Mountain View um, which I've been to many times famous spot in Silicon Valley lore Jim eventually gets to, you know sits down with them and meets them at Red Rock and just starts like answering all of their questions and um, you know uh, pitching them on why they should work together so they do an eight million dollar round at a slightly lower than an 80 million dollar post money valuation i believe sequoia got somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the company for this investment again crazy for this moment in time but jan talks about why they pick sequoia and, and jim and he says you know there are three reasons one all of sequoia's past successes that we talked about in Sequoia part one, including Yahoo and the brand associated with that Two, kind of personal chemistry with, with Jim. And then three, this is really important and is going to come back here in a second as we get into Facebook. He said it was really important that they didn't meddle. He's like, the business was working. We were printing cash. We were the clear market leader. We were growing super fast all around the world. And he said, Jim and Sequoia, they said to me like, look, we, you know, you don't want us like we're not going to mess with you you know things are working here like if they're not working we can talk about it but like we will help you and do whatever you need but like you guys are doing a great job i think that's just like so a so powerful in terms of what that sets up for a relationship between a founder and a venture capitalist um but also like clearly that was so important to jan and brian all throughout everything and and foreshadows what's about to come with facebook here <laughs> Yeah, when, when others do start to, to exert control. So this happens, and then they're off to the races. By October 2011, it was early 2011 when that round finally closes. By October 2011, WhatsApp is processing over 1 billion messages per day. By the next year, August, August 2012, they grow to 10 billion messages per day. That's exponential growth right there, 1 to 10 billion in, in one year. A few months later, by February 2013, uh, WhatsApp has about 200 million active users around the world. And at this point, Sequoia, in secret at this point in time, invests another $50 million in the company at a $1.5 billion valuation for a company that, you know, they're making their $1 you know, a year fee that they're only charging in some countries. It's in the US, it's in the UK, I believe, it's in some other European countries, but nowhere else around the world are they actually charging for the app. But the, clearly the strategic value of this is just so high that uh, and yeah. the growth is incredible. Yeah, it's not like on on any multiple of of net income you're gonna any reasonable multiple you're gonna get to one and a half billion dollars. One of the fascinating things here is, you know, Sequoia. There's no one that invests between. So the last time Sequoia invested, it was seventy, eighty million dollars. They come in two years later with a, a term sheet for a company that they're already basically the only investor in or the only institutional. They mark up their own deal and they're not shy about marking it up and saying, hey, like we think this thing's worth two hundred million dollars now. They say, Nope, it's worth a billion and a half. And like of course, the the growth of the company, and there's lots of good reasons why you could justify that. The outcome certainly justifies that. Um, but it takes, you know, a, a firm like Sequoia and a partner like Jim, I think, to be able to make that call. Yeah. Let's bring in another thread of the story. There was probably one specific thing that was giving um, Sequoia and Jim a lot of confidence here. <laughs> and that was before, uh, almost a year before that round took place in the spring of 2012, Jan gets an email with the subject line, get 
together question mark. <laughs> and that email is sent from Mark Zuckerberg. That's interesting to start with. Um, but uh, <laughs> I believe as the story goes, Jan kind of tries to stiff arm him. He's not really interested in meeting with Mark. And famously, they like totally resisted talking to the press. They didn't have a sign on the building. They weren't doing any of the Silicon Valley hype game. They really just wanted to focus on the product and growth. And most of the usage is international. People in the US use WhatsApp, but by far, it's much more dominant in other countries around the world. And so Jan's trying to give Mark the, the stiff arm and Mark just keeps coming at him. And so at, the, at, at one point, Jan forwards the email chain to Brian and, and to Jim Getz and says, persistent, <laughs> uh, as the story goes. So they decide to take the meeting. There's one other fun thing to note here before we move on from the 50 million that Sequoia invested. Jan and Brian tell Jim, uh, by the way, we don't need your money because uh, we never spent any of the original 8 million. And uh, after the deal closed, they they actually sent, uh, I think, a screenshot or a, f- a photograph or something of the bank account before the financing that says like, you know, 8.125 million or something like that to prove it to him that yes, we grew to 50 employees and we scaled and we didn't need to spend any of your money in the first place. I think it was actually, it was over 8.25 million because it was over the total amount of capital they'd raised altogether, Ah. including the 250 uh, (laughs) seed round. But again, before the, before the $50 million round, Jan and, and Zuckerberg and Zuck do end up getting lunch together. Nothing kind of happens, but Zuck makes it clear he's really, really interested in what WhatsApp is doing. And there might be really interesting things that these two companies could do together. And of course, Facebook had just gone public and had a liquid public currency. And um, I'm sure all of these things were implied. Stock may have been in quite the dip, but uh, but still. <laughs> and that's probably actually why nothing happened at that point in time was the stock was in the dumps. But then as we've chronicled it, then then they bought Instagram and everything turned around and um, the stock went way, way higher over the next year. Also over the next year, WhatsApp grows to over 300 and then over 400 million users. And so now we get to early 2014. They've done the Sequoia deal, the second Sequoia deal. And this is really interesting. There's only been very little reporting on this. So we have only a few tidbits to go on, but apparently Tencent, which at this point, as we've chronicled, you know, had developed WeChat and owns WeChat and QQ before that. And they're the largest social and messaging app in China. Apparently Tencent was ready to do a deal to buy WhatsApp for in the single digit billions, high single digit billions. And the deal was pretty far along. And Pony Ma, the CEO, was scheduled to come over to California to finalize the deal with Jan and Brian and Jim. Uh, But he had to have back surgery and had to delay the trip. And we're now in like late January, early February, 2014. During this period of time, I'm sure WhatsApp, uh, you know, and, and Jan and Brian and Jim engineered all this, they kind of let it be known to two parties that things might be going on. One, of course, is Mark and Facebook. The other is Google. They had gotten to know Sundar, uh, who at that point in time was running Android, remember, at Google. And they kind of let it be known to Sundar that something might be going on. Sundar gets them a meeting scheduled with Larry Page for Tuesday, February 11th, 2014. 
somehow Facebook and Zuck find out that this meeting is scheduled and he gets Jan over to his house the Monday night before February 10th. In that uh, meeting, he says, no, we're serious about an acquisition. I know all your beliefs about advertising and your product beliefs of WhatsApp and how committed you are to privacy and being independent. And so here's the deal. We want to acquire you. It'll be a big number. WhatsApp is going to remain independent. And now remember, Facebook can credibly say this, as we've talked about on the show. They are the the, the poster child for making these leave them alone acquisitions, you know, Instagram being uh, number one here. And um, it's going to be it mostly been, what, stock. Two, two years since Instagram? So there was like two, real two years since historical. Instagram at this point. Yep. And it had yeah. really gone well. And, and he said, you know, I really want this to be a partnership so much so that most of the, we'll do most of the deal in stock. And you're going to become a very large shareholder in Facebook, Jan, you personally, and we will make you a board member of Facebook. (laughs) Which is, I think, one of six or seven at the time. Yeah. And nobody else, the only Facebook employee board members are are Mark and Cheryl, and everyone else is an outside board member. So this is pretty big. He really, uh, it's unclear if Facebook knew about Tencent, but they knew about Google and they really did not want Google to acquire WhatsApp. Um, (laughs) Jan says, okay, interesting. Thank you very much. (laughs) The next day he and Brian go down to Google. They meet with Larry Page, you know, they talk for an hour, have a nice conversation. Um, unclear. And where's Google in their, their, their messaging world right now because google's launched some new form of messenger i think it's like an annual tradition for them to launch a new messaging product and so i think at this point like gchat i don't think was totally dead but hangouts they were trying to double down on it was before duo and some of these newfangled ones but like you got to remember back at this time people really felt that or at least the tech press was obsessed with writing about the mobile messaging wars. Um, And there are these deep dives on WeChat in China and WhatsApp's crazy growth. And uh, Facebook had acquired Beluga, I think, and launched Messenger at this point. And it was, you know, who will win this new, is this the new app store? You know, is, is messaging sort of the new app? Like now we don't think of Google really as a messaging company, even though obviously tons and tons of messages are exchanged on Android all the time. They were very much still in this race for what everyone thought was going to be the next user interface paradigm. Yep, yep. And failing at it. Uh, or at like least I said, annual tradition flailing. to launch a new one. Yeah, annual tradition. <laughs> in the meantime, Jan and, and Jim and Brian, they're trying to figure out like, well, what's our number? What's this? What do we think we're worth? And Twitter had gone public recently and Twitter had a $30 billion market cap and had fewer MAUs than WhatsApp. And now, of course, Twitter had a very robust advertising business model at this point, and WhatsApp had very little business model. But uh, you know, they kind of look at each other and they're like, "Well, Twitter's worth thirty billion. We're bigger than they are. We got to be worth at least twenty billion. <laughs> and so they put <laughs> this out to get all the parties. And Zuck bites. And so the next day, Jan and Zuck get back. He's together. like, "I just dropped a billion on Instagram. So yeah, what's twenty of that? <laughs> what's twenty of that?" And the week goes on, and then by the end of the week, Friday, February 14th, 
Valentine's Day. <laughs> that evening, Jan goes back on Valentine's. Also Jenny's birthday, by the way. Uh, my wife Jenny, wonderful wife Jenny's birthday. Dude, you are like ruining her uh, uh, her like two-factor auth security answers here. <laughs> Jan's is hosed. Like. <laughs> <laughs> totally, yeah. Everybody's birthday. We're just all about birthdays here on Acquired. So Valentine's Day... Jan, Mark and Jan have a romantic dinner at Zuck's house. I believe it was during that dinner that uh, they hammer out the details and Zuck puts 19 billion on the table. And uh, I don't know if he literally put 19 billion on the table, but I think it was 16 billion. And then the next day they negotiated up to 19.4 or something. Like there was something where there was an initial offer and then, and then they raised it. It was $16 billion acquisition plus $3 billion in stock awards and retention grants for Jan and Brian. So that might have been what brought it up. They agree. Uh, They shake hands. They hug. Uh, Supposedly, Zuck says that this was f-bomb exciting <laughs> and uh takes out a bottle of johnny walker blue which he knew jan loved they have a shot and then they hand it off to the lawyers and so over the weekend remember this is a friday now mobile world congress is coming up the next week they want to announce this and get it done before mobile world congress so they hand it off to the lawyers and over the weekend the lawyers put everything together now it's super important zuck just wants this done it's super important to Jan and Brian that like they don't want advertising on WhatsApp. Facebook's an advertising company. And so they get their lawyers to put a clause in the documents that says if Facebook ever implements advertising on WhatsApp, that the two of them, and this is where this the $3 billion in retention and stock grants for them becomes super important, that they would get full acceleration of any vesting on that stock and that they could walk away with all the money. <laughs> Which may have kept Facebook from doing putting that on the roadmap until uh, exactly. much more recently. Exactly. And so I don't know if this was something that because the deal came together so quickly, Facebook didn't think hard enough about this or they agreed to it and thought, you know, whatever, we'll just do it anyway. This is in the final documents. The Wall Street Journal did a big, um, that we'll link to in our sources, uh, did a big um, article about this that it actually made it into the final docs. And so it was part of the deal. The next week, they announced the deal, $19 billion total um, consideration. By the time the deal actually closed, Facebook stock had run up uh, and it was uh, $22 billion in 22. total value. 22. You know, what's another $3 billion between friends? <laughs> um, at Mobile World Congress, Mark Zuckerberg gives a keynote speech. He talks all about the acquisition. He says that it's, it's you know, WhatsApp going to be independent. It's not going to be advertising. It's really the vision is related to internet.org. It's that they're building like this suite of utility services for the internet. Particularly in developing areas outside the U.S. where their monetization currently isn't working at all. It's all going to be great. And for a while, things are great. No pressure to monetize. And before we move on, we should talk a little bit about the way the financial terms of the deal broke down. So sure, it's this uh, 16 gone, 19 gone, $22 billion all in package. Four and a half billion of that is in cash. Close to 14 billion of that is stock, Facebook stock consideration for WhatsApp. So that goes to all shareholders, including their existing investors. Um, you got to remember the and share price Sequoia back then. If had held that stock. Exactly. I mean, their returns was 77 were incredible bucks. 
Oh, man. 77 bucks a share. So today there'd be an, an additional 25 billion for the, the combined total of those shares would be up another 25 billion. You then go and look at the shares that were the RSUs given to um, the founders when they when they came over to Facebook. That would be an additional $7 billion today if they had held on to that stock. I don't think wow. they did for philosophical reasons. When no, they we're going to get into we'll that. Get to, came out against Facebook, but like, oh my gosh, what Facebook was giving up here, and we'll talk about this in the grading, I don't think you should think about is the cash value. I think you should think about as the percentage of their equity value, which is about 10%. Like they're a 200 something billion market cap company at this point. They basically sold 10% of the company in order to go and get this asset. And for reference, we'll talk about this in analysis later, but Facebook is a $630 billion market cap company today. Pretty wild. Wow. Totally wild. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts. So frameworks like SOC 2, ISO 27001, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better, i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe, and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com slash acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com slash acquired. Well, we'll bring things on home here on the History and Facts. A couple of things that we'll go through quickly. At first, things do go great. There's no pressure to monetize. Growth massively accelerates. They were 400-ish million MAUs at the time of the acquisition. By August of that year in 2014, they hit 600. Also that fall in 2014, importantly, they implement full end-to-end encryption and privacy within WhatsApp. January 2015, 700 million MAU. April, 800 million MAU. And then by the end of the year, they're at a billion users. Which which then importantly makes them, in 2015, the most popular messaging application in the world, surpassing WeChat. The entire world, yeah, surpassing WeChat. Which is still something I think is so underappreciated today. Like WhatsApp is the largest messaging application in the world. Today they have 1.5 billion monthly active users. 
Yep. We talk a lot in this show about it's hard to grasp the scope of China scale, but like WeChat as of, I think the end of last year had like 1.1 billion users and it's kind of the like operating system for how people do things on their phones of all types, including messaging in China. And like, you know, it's 40% bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. Now a very different business as we'll get into, (laughs) but some cracks start to form. So, you know, remember Facebook had agreed to this no advertising thing and all this messaging behind the scenes though. Facebook is of course like, yeah, we're an advertising company. That's why we're, uh, (laughs) that's our business model. That's what works on the internet. And that's why we're a huge, you know, at this point, hundreds of billions going to $630 billion market cap company. And yeah, WhatsApp, like you should be part of that. (laughs) Um, Jan and Brian fight it. Apparently, it gets really heated internally. Apparently, Cheryl Sandberg keeps saying to them, it worked for Instagram. <laughs> and uh, they keep uh, <laughs> rejecting any participation in the ad ecosystem within Facebook. And importantly, that means two things. Not just showing ads on WhatsApp. That's actually, at first, the less controversial thing. It's, it's about more sharing user data, right? Sharing user data um, from WhatsApp users with Facebook. And then Facebook has a highly sophisticated ad targeting system across all their properties, you know, core Facebook, Instagram, which is Instagram is on their hyper growth trajectory at this point. Yeah. Um, Messenger. Messenger, everything else. They want to use all the data from Facebook to, or from WhatsApp to help with targeting within those other products. And Jan and Brian are like, NFW. <laughs> um, so things start to get really heated. And of course, remember, they had said that the, at the time of announcement, even in a blog post by WhatsApp, that they would never do this. And Facebook, to show they're really serious here, in January 2016, they say, oh, also, yeah, that 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 revenue model that, uh, you know, was um, so benevolent and scaling so nicely of $1 a year. Uh, yeah, it's gone. We're, we're just making it free now. Yep. In May of 2017, the European Commission fines Facebook over 100 million euros for misleading it during the antitrust uh, process during the buyout of WhatsApp and saying that it falsely claimed that they weren't going to use data from WhatsApp to improve advertising and that they are. Um, so that was to which Facebook huge. responds something like, oh, whoops, we didn't mean to. That was a clear. Yeah. That was some not, sort they of say it was not intentional. It was an oversight. Another interesting thing to note right around the same time, uh, status goes from being an away message like feature to looking exactly like stories that is just, you know, being rolled out in Facebook and Instagram and Messenger, uh, which is a product that happens to lend itself very well to advertising. Very well to advertising. You can see where the setup is going here. So in September 2017, Brian is like, I've had enough. I haven't hit my earn out yet, but I'm leaving. He walks out. I'm, on the I'm company so fed it. up that I'm leaving billions of dollars on the he table. Left, he leaves $850 million on the table, but he tries not to. He tries to invoke, and again, w, Wall Street Journal did a big investigative reporting on this. He tries to invoke the clause and he says, you guys are implementing advertising. Seems pretty clear. I haven't hit my you know earnout yet, but I'm going to get acceleration here. And Facebook fights it, and uh, they're prepared to go to the mat. And finally, Brian says, "Look, you know, I don't need this in my life. I'm already a billionaire." And he walks and he leaves 850 million dollars on the table. He immediately donates 50 million dollars to an organization called Signal that is essentially making an open source end-to-end encrypted WhatsApp competitor. He becomes the executive chairman there, sets it up as a nonprofit says you know they're funded in perpetuity and like everybody should stop using facebook owned products um which 
I totally did not realize. Like, I've obviously I know about Signal. Like, uh, tons and tons of journalists use it. People that, that it's it's sort of the one of the most widely accepted sort of private, secure um, messaging platforms on mobile. Had no freaking idea it was the co-founder of WhatsApp that that sort of in his disillusioned post Facebook state. But this, you know, yeah, exactly. He he gives the it, it was not started by him, but then he gives he turns it into a foundation, gives them fifty million, and and becomes executive chairman. Then in March 2018, the Cambridge Analytica scandal hits, and Brian, you remember, he left in September 2017. He sends out a tweet that reads on March 20th, 2018, it is time. Period. Hashtag delete Facebook, and then all the all the crap hits the fan. Supposedly, uh, Cheryl calls Jan, who's still, you know, at WhatsApp and Facebook at this time. It's like, <laughs> what? WTF? Um, you know, of course. Hey, do you know uh, this guy? Can you talk to him? Yeah. But he doesn't retract it. And in fact, Brian goes and does a big interview with Forbes. He says, quote, at the end of the day, I sold my company. I sold my user's privacy to a larger benefit. I made a choice and a compromise, and I live with that every day. Um, On my yacht. So, yeah, on my yacht. Yes, of course. I mean, Brian really <laughs> seems like, both Fine and Jan seem like really totally. wonderful people. But um, totally. uh, but yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's where it goes. And so then April, the next month, Jan announces on Facebook that he is also going to leave WhatsApp and Facebook. He leaves about $400 million on the table. And at the point where he leaves there, that's like that's like right when they hit $1.5 billion monthly. Yeah. So like now they're just kicking the pants off of any other mobile <laughs> any messaging other. app. and. And it's funny, you know, in his post, when I saw this at the time and I remember this, I thought, oh man, Jan is just trolling Facebook because his post reads that he's going to, quote, take some time off to do things I enjoy outside of technology, such as collecting rare air-cooled Porsches, working on my cars, and playing (laughs) Ultimate Frisbee. And I didn't know all that I know about Jan now at the time. And I was just like, oh my God, this is such a troll. Like, uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, good for him for doing this. But like, the funny thing is, though, I now feel like I'm so in Jan's head. I think he was totally serious. He actually is a nut. Like, there's, um, I listened to a great podcast uh, about like collecting rare Porsches. Like, he's so into it. Like, I think he was being dead serious. Uh, that's it his, is like, crazy that he decided to get specific and say rare air cooled Porsches in the press quote. We'll link to this in the show notes, but um, that is exactly like he doesn't like turbocharged Porsches. He likes naturally aspirated. He thinks it's the best. Of, like I, I had no idea until I found <laughs> this podcast. There is a whole niche community of Porsche 911 enthusiasts that have like religious wars about you know naturally aspirated versus turbocharged engines. <laughs> it's amazing. You can have a religious war about anything, my friend. About anything. Um, I think the moral of the story is podcasts are the next platform for the internet. <laughs> so he's gone. And that kind of gets us to today. I mean, a couple of things we'll cover, but WhatsApp continues to grow hugely. Yeah, they did. They did one other thing that's worth calling out during this time period in the last few years, and that's they launched uh, WhatsApp Business, which is a second WhatsApp app that I installed on my phone that basically works a lot like WhatsApp. Uh, but if if you're a business and you're communicating with your customers through WhatsApp, this is a sort of optimized for business way to do it, which foreshadows some of the stuff that they they potentially plan on doing with the app. But, you know, I open this show by saying like they haven't done much. I mean, they really haven't. Like they've scaled it. They've simplified the UI a little bit and they launched WhatsApp business. So there are four quick things that have happened. One is trying to launch WhatsApp business, which hasn't really 
has been kind of a failure to launch. Two, they tried to get into mobile payments in India. It's in beta, but it's been in kind of perpetual beta. Has also it's been, been sort beta of a, in freaking 2018. Yeah, yeah like kind of early 2018. Um, There's also regulatory issues. There's something like they built a data center to support like 500 million people using it concurrently, but it, it got tied up in you know some terrible regulatory thing. And and I, on earnings calls recently, they've said it's ready to launch. So like maybe we'll see it this year, but we'll see maybe. But and this is one of the reasons we've waited so long to do this episode is you know the messaging out of Facebook has been for years like wait monetization see. for WhatsApp is coming. Well, now it's been six years and like uh you know it's not here i just want to touch on this this peer-to-peer payments thing like if you run the playbook of everybody in india right now or tons of people are using whatsapp to message we just make it easy for them to send money back and forth then suddenly it's like venmo or square cash then and, and that doesn't have a business model i should note so they're going from something without a business model to something without a business model and we heard this you know directly from andrew cortina when he joined us for the venmo episode like peer-to-peer payments there's no consumer acceptable way to take a vig on a, a peer-to-peer no. payment but it's there all is all about from, the merchant payments. from merchant payments yeah exactly so you know peer-to-peer payments can be a way to bootstrap into merchant payments right there's one more leap that they need to then take which is hey all the consumers are exchanging money let them pay at your store with this thing but like we're still two leaps away from that yep okay so the next two things that sort of are the most natural you know one is okay fine the founders are now gone this clause doesn't apply anymore you'd think that they would just implement advertising at least in status uh, which is the stories you know snapchat competitor that they baked into whatsapp so they announced facebook announced last year in 2019 that they were going to do that they even showed prototypes of what advertising and stories on whatsapp would look like and stories on whatsapp are pretty popular like a lot of people around the world use them as a matter of fact on the q2 earnings call this year there's a quote from facebook saying whatsapp status is already the most popular ephemeral stories product in the world yeah which is a hell of a statement yeah totally um seems obvious right well, they just announced last week that they're not going to do that, that they're pulling any, all advertising from stories on WhatsApp. So back to no advertising on WhatsApp. And then this is where you know things really jump the shark. The final thing that has happened in the post-founder exiting world is Libra <laughs> and Calibra within Facebook, you know, which, of course, the Facebook's cryptocurrency efforts that were supposed to be, you know, the thesis was, well, WhatsApp would make a lot of sense as a remittances platform for, you know, people use it to communicate with trusted interpersonal relationships between countries. Shouldn't it also be, you know, a really great platform for remittances? And people have always said cryptocurrencies are great for remittances. You can avoid all these tariffs. That makes sense. But like, we all know Libra is a mess right now. I think they're being sued by the government. Um, I don't know the latest state of it, but it seems unlikely that that is going to be a viable business model anytime soon. Anytime soon is the, the right thing there. I think there's a variety of things that could still work out for WhatsApp, but the important takeaway listeners is we could not sit on our hands any longer before doing this episode and just keep hearing wait and see from Facebook on earnings calls. It's not happening in the near future. There might be something interesting. It might be with uh, um, paying businesses. It might even be tools for businesses to promote. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not being articulate here because I don't actually have a really great thesis around this. But the thing to take away here is it's not going to be very soon. Yeah. Okay, so I think this is the perfect transition to acquisition category. And this is the place to ask the question again that you asked at the top of the show, which is, okay, what is this? Like $22 
billion for no revenue six years later, effectively no revenue. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, David, before we, we categorize it, I have two things to say. One is uh, a thank you that I want to issue as we get into the um, the analysis here to friend of the show, Turner Novak of Gelt VC for helping us tremendously in how to think through analyzing this one. Uh, Turner's a, a really smart person in, in all things sort of consumer social. And we spent some time trying to trying to figure out how to slice this one up. The second thing that I want to say is I would love to quote for you how Facebook broke this down when they reported the acquisition to their investors, which I think is really illustrative of, of their thinking at the time. So they reported a $17 billion total sale based on the price that they knew at the time. $2 billion was for the users that they acquired. A half a billion dollars for trade names. So WhatsApp as a half billion dollar value brand out in the world. Um, a third of a billion for technology. Okay. Uh, and then $15.3 billion of goodwill. And I think that actually adds up to a little more than 17, but that's okay. So then uh, they go on to articulate, this is from the 2014 annual report, that goodwill generated from the WhatsApp acquisition is primarily attributed to expected synergies from future growth, from potential monetization opportunities, from strategic advantages provided in the mobile ecosystem, and from expansion of our mobile messaging offerings, which to me says 15.3 billion of, we have no idea. Like, <laughs> we just needed to own this thing. Now, of course, this is accounting treatment, and anybody who's, you know, worked in investment banking or certainly accounting knows goodwill is, you know, it's just where you stuff, it's a plug. But, but I think you're right, like, this is illustrative, you know, I think they were thinking like, yeah, 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 this is going to take a while and whatnot. But like, I think Facebook was fully expecting that this was going to be a cash flow monster, just like Instagram. Yeah. So listeners, if you're new to the show, the way that we categorize these acquisitions are people, technology, product, business line, asset, or other. And occasionally we we categorize it as, uh, as something that uh, I'm going to elect to use today, which is a takeout. <laughs> Which yes. is, it is worth a lot of our money to stop this thing from existing as an independent entity or in the hands of someone else. And we are willing to pay handsomely in the form of goodwill to make that happen. Goodwill um, You could argue man. product. <laughs> yes, you could argue the asset of the users. Certainly wasn't the business line. Technology, Lord knows Facebook could build. F people, you know, there were 50 people that worked there at the time. Obviously, some talented founders, lots of talented engineers. But my God, this thing was a takeout acquisition. Yeah, well, I, I don't care who the people are. Nobody is worth $22 billion. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, totally. Takeout or I was thinking um, defensive, you know, both in the moment of like, oh my God, we can't let Google have this. And whether they knew about Tencent or not, you know, the other thing is we've talked about in previous episodes, Facebook was really trying to enter, Mark was really trying to come up with a plan to enter China at this point in time. And uh, he really believed that China was going to be the next frontier for Facebook. Man, if Tencent were to acquire WhatsApp, then that would be terrible. Now, of course, Tencent ends up uh, acquiring Musical.ly and building TikTok. So, <laughs> uh, you know, Facebook won the battle but lost the war here. Um, uh, but yeah, I think like defensive and, and then fast forward to now and yeah, like things are pretty sad. <laughs> the state of affairs as we just described. On the other hand, this gets into, if you're ready to move on to what would have happened otherwise, what if WhatsApp had, you know, certainly we just talked about what would have happened if Google or Tencent or somebody else had acquired them. But I think the bigger threat is what if WhatsApp had remained independent? Would 
it in this world now where like everybody's so privacy motivated mark zuckerberg has said once he decided not to enter china that like his vision for facebook is a privacy oriented <laughs> world right like what if what's up ben thompson phrase there that's a massive strategy credit it's like exactly. yeah 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 privacy is super important to us kind, sure. and kind of like the, yeah. the except when it comes to ad targeting <laughs> but to be fair they keep all the data to themselves like they they by virtue yeah, of owning the entire end, end experience they they never um well i mean they don't they don't exchange it with third-party ad networks or other websites or that because you spend so much time with them uh they own the data end to end yep a- absolutely true but it would be, it'd be interesting if there were a viable third you know standalone independent public company which whatsapp would certainly be at this point you know that were a, a different vision of what a social you know app looks like would they have figured out some of these business models that we talked about along the way independently you know i don't know i don't know a lot of execution risk there but um certainly would have been a threat you nailed it this is the real crux of grading it's it's not so much about what what is Facebook gaining by owning it? It's how much are they decreasing their risk of having no value in the future by by this thing existing? Facebook's entire business is maintaining attention share. So long as you are spending your time and attention with Facebook, they're going to keep printing money at, at to the tune of 45% operating margin, 20 plus billion dollars of profit a year. It's a freaking cash machine. And so by looking out in the world and observing WhatsApp and saying, eh, we'll have to squint to your point in execution risk, but there could be this thing that leverages all that connectivity that people have with each other and they're exchanging messages, which isn't so different than sort of public posts and they're exchanging statuses, which isn't so different than the way that we started with wall posts. It could evolve into a thing that steals attention share. And the what would have happened otherwise way to think about this is they could have been independent and they could have sort of evolved into their own social network or to your point earlier google could have bought them and that would have been catastrophic because i think google would have been sort of the only formidable ones as you mentioned who could have paid up but then also who would have executed a sort of attention grabbing strategy there and so to wrap this i think my little rant here you know, uh, what would have happened? Uh, a billion people could have shifted attention from Facebook to WhatsApp, but I'm going to hold off right now on trying to put a price on that yeah. uh, until we get to grading. Well, I want to go one step further, which is like, okay, you know, yeah, all this line of logic. You could say, if you're listening, that doesn't add up, right? Like they, the same thing could have been said more credibly about Snapchat and Facebook wasn't able to buy Snapchat. Zuck only offered $3 billion. You know, things fall apart. Certainly, if, if he was willing to pay $22 billion for WhatsApp, why, you know, he certainly could have had Snap for $22 billion that I suspect. Now, I don't know. I don't know for sure. But, like, why didn't he put that $22 billion on the table for Snap? Here's what I think is interesting. Snap, execution-wise, is a much clearer path to what we were just talking about. Like, advertising-based network, super attention-based, all that stuff. But it's a much smaller network, um, much, much smaller. WhatsApp is the largest, I, I believe, the largest network in the world, and it's global. I pulled some stats here. These are all monthly active users. Facebook has 2.4 billion MAUs. YouTube has 2 billion. WhatsApp has 1.5, making it the largest messaging network. iMessage, which I think is an interesting one to consider here, is 1.3 billion. Facebook Messenger, oh, wow, also 1.3. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. iMessage is that big. 
Yeah, and it might be devices, not users. Apple's a little a little tougher to read on that, but um, an Instagram with a billion users yeah. uh, and, cha- and, uh, and WeChat, WeChat right there at around 1.1. So that's sort and of isn't the, the set. is hitting uh, a billion-ish now? Good question. Uh, yeah. The, but the important thing to know is today, Snapchat's only 310, Twitter's only 330, and I actually think TikTok may only be like 500 million, but I, I could be wrong on that. But the, importantly, Twitter and Snapchat subscale sort of networks when you're thinking global scale. So like, I think that's this is an interesting point for us to consider in grading. Yeah, a lot of execution risk ahead for WhatsApp. But they were the only kind of player out there that had the scale to really be a global threat. Yeah, and I mean it's it's really interesting to to think about of the what seven networks that have the seven social networks that have over a billion people, Facebook owns four of them. Yeah. And of the others that are that high, YouTube is off the table. Google already owns it. iMessage. No way Apple's going to sell the most iMessage. bundled product in the world. Yeah. Yep. WeChat, um, you know, and and Tencent, that's off limits because of, you know, the whole China issue. So yeah, WhatsApp's kind of the only, you know, and they already own Instagram. Facebook already owns Instagram. So it's kind of the only one in play. Yep. Totally agree. Playbook? Playbook. Let's do it. All right. So listeners, this is where we sort of analyze what did this acquisition enable them to do, uh, them being Facebook, and what plays or or what tactics um, did WhatsApp and Facebook use along the way to become this behemoth that uh, that it's become? So David, you want to go first? Yeah, sure. I We've touched on a lot of them. The, on, the only one that I want to highlight again is just the these magical moments that only come once every sort of platform shift or every you know, roughly every decade in tech and who knows what the next one's going to be. But these windows that open up where they're not obvious in the beginning, you know, again, remember Jan was, he wanted this to be away messages, but like if you can get in there and figure out the right product, there's an opportunity to just serve such a clear need that a new platform enables and turn over um, the kind of, you know, guard of, of technology and, and networks, uh, that if there is one of those and you think you have one of those opportunities and you see it like good God, take Brian's advice and do not give up, go a couple more months. (laughs) So funny. That was exactly, um, exactly the point that I wanted to make here and specifically around both push notifications becoming available and also the wide, widely available, um, data networks that lived on top of telephony and on top of SMS completely, obsoleting the way that all the carriers were billing for messaging at that time. Yeah, we didn't talk as much about that. You know, we hit on it a little bit in the beginning of the episode, but like, yeah, that's it's just such a disruptive business model of like, I could pay $10,000 a month for my, you know, child's 16,000 text messages, or I could pay a <laughs> dollar a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's actually, it's funny. So sometimes we do this section, and I'd like to, to do it today uh, on value creation versus value capture. Because a lot of companies are, can create a ton of value in the world, but one of the sort of hard things to, to do is make sure that you're able to capture some of that value you create. WhatsApp didn't really try. Like WhatsApp created so much value. I mean, and, and frankly, they destroyed tons of value for carriers. Um, but until That's acquisition... That's slightly debatable, I think. Okay. I think you're probably right. But Jan and Brian got this question all the time, and their 
kind of canned answer that they came up with was, no, 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 we're actually helping carriers because we're encouraging people to adopt smartphones and move over to data plans, which data plans are more expensive than text plans. And is, I think it's a fair. It's a it's a it's, it's a fair yeah. argument, but it's flawed in that that was going to happen anyway. <laughs> so yeah. um, it is worth noting too that carriers just figured out a way to bill everyone. Like they just repackaged all of their 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 pricing. It's not like they actually materially lost uh, money. lost money yeah. on this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like I don't I don't consider WhatsApp an effective value capture machine, and still is not. Uh, clearly, <laughs> uh, yeah, they're capturing basically <laughs> zero value. <laughs> But massive value creation for the world. And and also, again, we didn't talk about this as much, but the end-to-end encryption and being the first platform to implement that platform-wide across everything, um, you know, nobody saw that coming in 2014, but in the world we live in today, like, I think that's really important and, like, really, you know, really good for the world that they did that. Totally agree. And to get into some of the nitty-gritty of that, uh, they actually then, WhatsApp later implemented the Signal Protocol, which is, uh, I believe, also end-to-end encryption. And Facebook... And is the same thing uh, as the foundation that Brian and the, and the open source messenger yep. and... Yep. Facebook can read something like, uh, and and we're not privacy experts, but uh, from sort of a cursory read over it, what really people that are really into privacy would want is Facebook to not be able to read, of course, the contents of your message, um, but also not be able to read like who sent what when. David, if I sent you an, a message on WhatsApp right now, Facebook would have it in their server logs, I believe. Listeners, please email us, acquiredfm at gmail.com or, uh, or tweet at us. Uh, I believe they would know that I just sent you a message. Hmm. Interesting. Which is kind of what they, one of the things they really wanted out of this anyway. There is more data they could get out of WhatsApp, but I I do think they get a good amount of data as it is today. Mm. Interesting. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. And these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where, quote-unquote, energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers, such as AWS and Google and Azure, who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired. That's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. And now, David, grading. Ooh, how are you going to make me go first? You go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's, let's tee it up first. So what's, what's the criteria? Like, 
what, what do we consider a plus? What do we consider an F? Well, okay. For me personally, anything in the A range is off the table just because I'm offended by the execution here. Uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but that's just me. I think you could still make an argument it's in the A range. I think the criteria by which I at least am going to grade is like how important was this defensive move and how valuable was it? Uh, so taking the perspective of grading as we always do from the acquirer's perspective as Facebook, I think this is still probably either a B or a B plus. And they would maybe people there would argue it's in the A range just by virtue of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They gave up 10% of their equity value, but they took out the one viable global network in this generation that could have been independent. The stock has gone from 200 billion market cap to 630 billion market cap in the intervening six years. Of course, in many ways due to not WhatsApp, but like just the by virtue of having the clear runway to do that has been good for Facebook to very, very good for Facebook. Pains me to say this because I want to give it an F, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's that's my grade. All right. Well, I'm glad I wrote down my grade before uh, before I heard you say yours, so I uh, I can be sort of unbiased here. Two things to keep in mind, listeners. Uh, one, they sold 10% of their market cap to be able to to buy this company. Another way to think about this is uh, Facebook was is a phenomenally profitable business. And another way to frame this is uh, they basically spent all of their 2019 net income or profit to buy this company. So was it worth spending an entire year of profit to go and, and, and buy them? I am going to grade this an A. I don't think it's an A+, plus, but I'm going to grade this an A. That's and fair. the reason I'm going to do that from. is is obviously the same sort of defensive play argument. But the way that I sort of think about it, it's like, what are the key risks to Facebook at this point? There's regulation. Like, I think there's regulatory reasons that that, that they could go away. There's obsolescence but because attention real, shifts elsewhere. Like I mean, yes, they're real, of course. But if you look at history, uh, and obviously a lot of this will depend on the coming election and whatnot, but like even, you know, Ben Thompson talks about this a lot. The DOJ didn't kill Microsoft. I mean, Microsoft's actually back and better than ever, but didn't kill the old version of Microsoft. Google killed the old version of Microsoft. Like um, regulation is such a slow process and technology moves so fast that is that a real risk? Right. So like, okay, so we're going to say regulation is not really their key risk. It's, it's really fading into obsolescence. And it's the thing that happened to social networks before them. And it's the, the Facebook has a lot of core competencies, but their very, very most central is not fading into obsolescence. Like buying Instagram, brilliant, you know, company saving move on multiple fronts, bought them another generation. I think WhatsApp is sort of this similar thing where, you know, they, they carved off 10% of their, the value of their company to go get it. But like, should they have done that? Absolutely. Should they do it again? They should go do it five more times. Every time there's, the, there's one of the seven, you know, billion plus user social networks or billion to be in the near future user social networks is up for sale. They should go make a horcrux and carve off a piece of themselves or do whatever they have to do to go and get that thing and keep their keep their dominant position i mean it is like the the consumer sentiment couldn't be freaking worse on this company based on a lot i mean there was delete facebook there's election stuff there's they're in trouble left right and center and it is making more money than ever there are more people using it than ever sure growth has slowed but like oh my gosh it's because they saturated humans on the internet and i just think that 
this is such a complete and total no-brainer. And even if they never make a dollar off of WhatsApp, to neutralize that threat and and get to continue to own the world's digital attention, I, I think is is not invaluable, but is very, very, very valuable to them. And one way to sort of look at this is if you think there was a 10% chance that WhatsApp could have totally wiped out Facebook at some point in the future then it was break even to buy it, even if they never, ever generate any cash flow. I agree. I just can't bring myself to give it an A, but that's <laughs> not for like logical reasons. Two comments to add on to that. One, in talking to a bunch of friends at, you know, at, at Facebook and former Facebook friends, um, in thinking about this episode, you know, one thing that is a core competency, and I think from my understanding, really viewed as a core competency within Facebook is extremely robust competitive intelligence. Like they know this, <laughs> they know ex- everything you just said and they are paranoid about it. What was that VPN app that they were using that they yeah. use for yeah. c- competitive intelligence to, to on, help them Anavo understand or something uh, like that on, on Vado or Anavo? Yeah. And then they eventually bought it and then they got into a bunch of trouble cause they were, yeah. So that's one. And then two, you know, I think this brings up an interesting question, right? Like if, if you'll indulge me for a minute, given my um, uh, <laughs> non-logical from an investor standpoint discussion of why Your I can't give this an bee. A. emotional being, <laughs> you know, I think there's a I think there's a legitimate question given all this and consumer sentiment on Facebook. How should the public and how should governments think about Facebook? Is it more like a tobacco company than a technology company? You know, like if you look at tobacco companies, they are still many many billions, tens of billions of market cap publicly traded companies because just like you've been saying, Ben, they are like wild cash flow monster producing machines, but they're also tobacco companies, right? Like they're also good at not dying. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to go so far and say like social media or Facebook is tobacco, but certainly there are some like questions about the societal good of, you know, data privacy, ad targeting, the emotional effects on people of social media and in particular Instagram and Facebook. Um, you know, I think those are real You're questions. looking at a guy who's number one time consuming app on his phone is Twitter. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not a Facebook app. Yeah, that's true. So anyway, yeah, I mean, maybe there's an LP show deep dive there somewhere of the, uh, have someone come on and debate the, the ethics of social media with us. I think that'd be super fun. Let's do yeah. it. Man, well, there it is. There's WhatsApp. There it is. We finally did it. I'm glad we waited this long. Yeah, me too. It's not like we would have gotten any more information, but at least we know that Facebook wasn't uh, going to effectively immediately gain any uh, new cash flow out of it. Yeah. Well, and I think by waiting this long too, it also made it super clear what this was really about. And if we had done this episode two years ago, we probably would have graded this like much lower. Because we wouldn't have seen how important this defensive move was. That's interesting. Or at least I don't think I would have. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. Do you want to do carve-outs? Yeah, let's do carve-outs. We haven't done them in a while. Good way to kick off season six. It is. You want to go for it? I'll go. This may come as a shock to you, Ben. I'm glad you're sitting down. I have been wearing different sneakers. Uh, recently. Dude, I almost did a sneaker carve out too and it was almost no also not fly nets. Yeah. You know, or, uh, what, are you, what are you wearing? Uh, I'm wearing Reebok flow rides, uh, float rides. They're excellent. I, I wear them both for running and for just around town. Cause they're like 
super stylish. I loved my fly nets. I still have my fly nets. But A, Nike is like moving away from fly nets and free fly nets. Um, the new ones are not good. No, they they look terrible. Um, they're like a really messed up back to the future thing. Like <laughs> um, these flow rides, they, okay, so sticker price, a hundred bucks. I got mine on Amazon for like 65 bucks. Runner's World reviewed this. I found out about them. Runner's World reviewed these things and they were like, you're not going to believe this, but these Reeboks are the best hundred dollar or less running shoe you can buy on the market. And so I was like, all right, great. I need some new running shoes. I'm going to try that. I got them and I'm like, these might be my everyday shoes. Like there's that good. Are they fl- float rides? Float rides. There's, there's a couple different models. I'll link to the one that, um, that I got, but yeah, I'm loving them. Pretty nice, man. You sure you're not, you're not Reebok endorsed, right? You didn't get a, you didn't get a deal. <laughs> uh, working on that, working on the shoe deal. <laughs> Hey, if Kanye can have a shoe deal, I think Acquired can have a shoe deal. Oh, yeah. Now we should get on that for sure. Okay, so my carve-out is a product category that I'm going to recommend uh, because I don't know the brand. But I recently went to the eye doctor. I I wear contacts. After getting my contact fitting, I was talking to my eye doctor, and she brought up, uh, do you have computer glasses? And I sort of seen other people with them, didn't really understand, and got like totally sold on the value. And I've been wearing them and like absolutely love them. They do this interesting thing. I wear them over my contacts. And what they do is they do two things. One, they change my where my eyes naturally are at rest to like 18 inches in front of my face instead of being like off in the far distance, which is what my contacts naturally have them do. And I think what our eyes naturally would do if you don't require uh, glasses or contacts, it makes it so that when you're staring at a screen, you don't get eye strain from constantly having your muscle, your eye muscle sort of tensed up to be like looking at something close to you. So like I find that working is much more comfortable and I can like read and write longer. Um, The other thing that they do, so there's this like slight magnification from changing where the resting focus is. So the screen, everything on the screen looks a little bit bigger. This is how you know I'm becoming an old person. Um, And the other thing is it, uh, it filters out blue light. It doesn't really change materially the the color or the hues of what you're looking at, but it makes it kind of safer for your eyes, better for your brain. You can sleep more easily at night. They're awesome. I actually now feel very strange sitting down at my computer without wearing the glasses. That's awesome. So yeah. how do they work? Are they... So they're not prescription. It's just... Or they are prescription? They're, it's, I think they are prescription, but they sell ones that aren't prescription. But basically, it's they, they have the two features. One is the blue light uh, uh, filtration, and the other is um, changing your uh, resting um, focus to be about 18 inches from your face. Got it. So the, they're not designed for vision, the like outside of working at a computer vision correction that would be like unique Correct. to everyone. They're like, huh. Interesting. Correct. Yeah, I actually take them off when I stand up to like walk to a meeting or something because it's kind of like freaky when you look all the way down the hall. It's not like as stark as uh, not wearing your glasses or something like that, but it is kind of like you got to refocus your eyes aggressively to go look at something far away. I'm going to have to check these out because um, A, sounds like a great product and benefit. B, I've always thought that I might like look good with glasses, but I don't uh, lucky I don't have I have normal vision and I'm like I'm not gonna be that guy that's just gonna wear glasses for I have an excuse <laughs> yeah so now I have an excuse <laughs> it does uh it makes you look really like big-eyed though like kind of like bug uh like what I'm wearing <laughs> right now I don't know if my eyes look bigger to you but they uh I always oh, like no whenever I've seen 
yeah, like see, caught my reflection was like, whoa, eyes look huge. I, did, I didn't notice, but now that I'm looking, yeah, you look like a um, you look like a SnapTap filter. That's like what I've always wanted. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, that's a good. All right, note. let's bring it home, <laughs> listeners. Uh, if you aren't subscribed and you like what you hear, uh, you should. Especially if you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we deeply appreciate you hitting the subscribe button and helping us, of course, get delivered to you every time that you want to listen to a new episode. But then also, uh, it really helps us in the uh, iTunes technology charts. Um, so uh, hit that subscribe button if you like the show. If you want to become a limited partner, uh, subscribing gets you access to our bonus show where we dive deeper into the nitty gritty of building companies. And you can listen by clicking the link in the show notes or going to glow.fm slash acquired and all new listeners get that seven day free trial. With that, we will see you next time. See you next time.